Um, listening to that very uh, gracious introduction, I'm reminded of what a former colleague had once said of me, which was that on paper I seemed like a fascinating individual. Um, thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, one of the great things about writing a book, as I say at the start of every speech I give, is the opportunity to come out and exchange ideas uh, and meet people uh, and, and get their questions and their comments. And it's just a very intellectually satisfying experience, much more satisfying, I'd suggest, perhaps, than even writing a book. Um, but I'm particularly excited today because I truly feel I'm amongst friends. Uh, many of you I've met before. Some of you I've corresponded before. But all of you are kindred spirits. And it's really uh, not only a treat but an honor to have been invited to speak at this year's conference. Uh, I just want to say that uh, I have great respect for what you're doing. It's, it's important. So thank you for, for uh, indulging uh, my, uh, uh, my pontifications. Healthcare is very personal, so maybe rather than talk about economics, which I hope to do shortly, and perhaps look at 2008, which we could do momentarily, I want to talk about a personal story about American medicine and some of the challenges we face. Um, it was the best of American medicine. It was the worst of American health care. Uh, my wife had a procedure that was a half inch long uh, in terms of the incision uh, it was a half hour in terms of the OR time and generated a bill that was a foot and a half long. Um, my wife tells this story slightly differently than I do, so I just want you to understand there's controversy. On this much, we can agree. I used to do couples therapy, and so it's very important to establish what you can establish as, as fact. We went on vacation. It was supposed to be the most inexpensive vacation of our lives. I'd been invited out to a trip in the Rockies. And they even agreed to cover my wife's uh, uh, plane ticket. All I needed to do was buy the lift tickets. My wife had never skied before, so I enrolled her in ski class. I think it was called something like the Snoopy Dog Ski Class. And, and my wife was a little hesitant, but felt it would be a good family activity. The long and the short of it is she managed to rupture a disc in her back. Uh, and ended up needing neurosurgery. Now, we somewhat disagree as to where that happened. I think she fell a lot on the bunny hill, and, uh, and that's the cause of the rupture. She, and I want to emphasize for the record, tells this story slightly differently, and it involves a large mountain, gay-like winds, and the avoidance of some sort of small but enormously cute mammal like a squirrel. Whether you buy her explanation the godly explanation, or mine, perhaps the Greek godly explanation, the long and the short of it was we were uninsured and we needed some neurosurgery. Uh, I was a, a diligent student of the Internet and decided to do the modern technique of Googling neurosurgery in West New York in mixed company. I can't tell you the first ten hits I got. Um, but needless to say, what I discovered was what we're all aware of, the black box of American medicine. It was enormously difficult to find a neurosurgeon and find out anything about a neurosurgeon. I resorted to cool calling neurologists because I think if you want a good opinion on a surgeon, you should call a neurologist. Most of them would talk to me over the phone. One or two of them gave me some suggestions, which proved very helpful. And we finally met with a neurosurgeon who seemed like a very likable guy, and uh, we discussed what the procedure would be like. And then he turned to us and he suggested that we would have a choice of hospitals. 
And I can't remember the names of the hospitals, but there were two of them, and we knew nothing about these two hospitals. And so, again, we Googled and couldn't find further information. And finally, we decided to go with the hospital with the saint in the title because, of course, nothing bad can happen to you in a hospital with a saint in the title. Everything worked out marvelously well, and I want to emphasize that. Uh, But there were so many frustrations. It wasn't just the lack of information. It also was the cost factor. We had this half-hour procedure done on an outpatient basis, and at the end we got this foot-and-a-half-long bill for thousands of dollars. And I was horrified, and I called up the the administrator of the hospital, and I said, look, of course we're going to pay, but I can't believe you really think we're going to pay this much money. And she said, I kid you not, Listen, this is just a starting point of our negotiations. Where else in the American economy do you get a bill and the administrator says to you, not even I take this seriously? Before we started negotiating, we started to receive letters uh, from uh, collection agencies. I called her up and I said, look, I understand the profit motive. I'm quite libertarian. I'll tell you what, let's take your Medicare list price, I'll add 15%, and I'll write you a check today. And she said, we can't do that. And I said, why can't we do that? And she said, it's a secret. And I said, what? The Medicare list price. You know, everyone I know has a story like that. I would point out, though, that it was the best of American medicine and that my wife had the procedure. She went back to working full time. She's an emergency doctor. She used to spend hours on the, day, uh, on the couch, a mobile. We just had our second child. She's doing great. Fifty years ago, I don't think my wife would have had any surgical options. Thirty years ago, she might have laid on that couch and done extensive rehab for months or even years after the fact. It was the best of American medicine, the worst of American healthcare. We hear these stories all the time. I'm sure you yourself have stories not necessarily involving Rockies and ski clubs, uh, but, but involving that black box of American healthcare. It's enough to make people frustrated, and I've noticed that in the last couple of years, this debate has started to tilt and tilt leftward, and things that weren't really discussable just a few short years ago are back on the table. Michael Moore's got a documentary out claiming that Canada's the answer to all of our problems. More and more academics feel comfortable talking about that. We don't have a debate like that in Washington, but it's certainly likely that in the next number of years, with costs continuing to rise, we might. And let us not forget what an enormous problem we have with American health care. Uh, costs are spiraling up. Health insurance premiums have roughly doubled in the first five years of this decade. It's hit American workers literally in the pocketbook. Though labor costs are up, the average family income is down. It's part of the reason why incumbents have so much difficulty. Uh, as, uh, as Neil Newhouse observes in his latest poll uh, from Public Opinion Strategies, a third of the American people think the economy is in recession. Why is that? Because health costs keep eating up the bottom line. There is then that government temptation, something that you and I are very wary of. Let me tell you how I came to be so distrustful of government uh, and and so uh, mindful that what we really ought to do, what I've written my last book about, is capitalism when it comes to health care. I am an accidental health policy wonk. When I was growing up in Canada, smack dab in the middle of the Canadian prairie, I thought I would be the last person on earth to know anything about health policy. I wanted to get into medical school. I could quote you statistics on MCAT admission scores right across North America. I could vaguely tell you what GDP spending was on health care. 
I remember growing up in Canada, I probably soaked up three things from the environment wholly and completely. The first was a love of ice hockey. The second was an ability to convert Fahrenheit into Celsius in my head. And the third was a belief that if the government did it when it came to health care, it must be compassionate. Let me not overemphasize that point, okay? Again, I wasn't a health policy person. I hadn't poured over literature for years and years. But I grew up in Canada, and everyone believed in socialized medicine, so I did as well. I remember when the Hillary Care debates occurred in Washington, D.C. in the early 1990s, which, incidentally, I didn't follow particularly closely. I remember thinking they were on to something, because obviously you need some sort of a government solution. What I knew of American health care was that it was disastrous and expensive, and that millions of people who all seemed to find themselves onto primetime television, at least fictionally, were uninsured. Things changed for me when I got to medical school. I think the most important lesson I learned wasn't actually in the classroom, but was on the way to the classroom. And there was one particular day that stands out in my memory. Uh, Winnipeggers are a hardy lot, and they actually have parking lots outside, even though it gets miserably cold in the dead of winter. On a cold winter's day, it can actually drop to 40 below, which, for your trivial pursuit buffs out there, uh, is actually the same in Celsius as it is in Fahrenheit. And I was walking to the classroom, and wanted to shave two minutes off my commute time and decided to cut across the ER of the teaching hospital I was at. Again, let me not state, um, let me not mislead you. It wasn't because I was fascinated by emergency departments or anything of the sort. I just wanted to get out of the cold weather. And I remember swinging open this door and stepping inside into another world. It's part of the emergency room overcrowding crises that have plagued Canadian healthcare now for the better part of two decades. It was particularly bad in the mid-1990s, and I stepped inside, and there were elderly people who had been waiting there two, three days on stretchers, and the smell of sweat and of urine and of fear hung in the air. I just remember looking at these people and the pain and the anguish they were in, wondering, what on earth is going on here? Well, I started to do reading, and the more I read, the more dissatisfied I was. I discovered that waiting lists weren't accidental. They weren't some type of a local problem, but they were going on all the time. I mean, some cases I remember seeing uh, just as I was doing my training, a a gentleman who who had a hernia repair, and I guess they'd caught some sort of a a nerve fiber as they were closing him up, and he had chronic pain as a result. Not a a big deal. He needed to go to a, a pain clinic, except that the wait list was two years. A gentleman with classic symptoms of sleep apnea who needed to go to a sleep disorders clinic and have a sleep study, except there was a three-year wait list. Uh, I grew outraged, and I decided to write more on it, and I decided to reconsider my own beliefs. At that time in Canada, there really were two dominant schools of thought. There were the magicians and the spendthrifts. The magicians thought, all you've got to do to make this healthcare system work is hire more administrators, because administrators are smart, and they'll come up with, and I use this jokingly, a better five-year plan. And then there are the people who just think you need to spend a little bit more money, the spendthrifts. And, you know, with just a touch more cash, you'll resolve everything from the attitude of the grumpiest orderly to the most egotistical neurosurgeon. And initially, I was a spendthrift on this paradigm, and then I became a magician, and then I became an agnostic, and finally I became an atheist. And and the reason was I came to the conclusion that the problem was with the system itself. I started writing articles on this, and there's only so much you can say in 700 words, so I decided to write a book. Let me assure you, I was even surprised myself that I had decided to write a book. And if we got on the phone, my high school English teacher right now, I'm sure he would be astonished that I had read a book, never mind written one. (laughs) And I started to write this book, and 
I didn't find many people who were that interested. Um, even finding patients to talk about the system proved difficult. I remember one particular case which involved a family friend who had cancer and was in Toronto, and there was a long wait time for the chemotherapy he needed, the literally life-saving chemotherapy. And I asked him if I could just include his personal story in an article I, I was writing, and maybe even in the book, but I wouldn't include his name. And he said, you know, that's probably okay, but I want to talk to my wife about it and then I'll get back to you. Well, he called me back a week later, and he said, look, um, I'm a little bit concerned about repercussions of criticizing the government system. Would it be okay if we just blurred some of the details, like we changed my gender? And I thought about it, and I said, why not? And he said, okay, well, let me think about it some more. And, and he called me back a week later, and he said, what happens if we change the locale? So I wasn't a Toronto woman with cancer, but I was a, a, a Calgary woman, and I said, well, let me think about it. And he said, well, I'll call you back in a week. And he called me back in a week, and he said, does it have to be cancer? Um, <laughs> and then I tried to write this book. I do find people who would speak out few and far between. And I, I wrote this book, and I, I, chapter by chapter, and I needed to find a publisher. I would point out, by the way, that, as you know, I'm in psychiatry. My parents were very supportive. I have a well-adjusted childhood, for the record. But I would point out that I think even they wondered if I'd finished the book. Well, I did. And I started to, to approach publishers, and I sent out sample chapters and proposals, 12 in all, and I got 13 letters of rejection. One academic publishing house lost the sample chapters, rejected it based on the proposal, found the sample chapters, and realized it was as dreary as they had suspected it would be. Another publishing house sent me a letter to say that for confidentiality purposes, not only were they rejecting my manuscript, but they had already shredded it. Not only was I rejected, but literally destroyed. I found one publishing house, though, that was willing to publish my first book, Code Blue. And the publisher explained to me that actually he didn't think the book was so good or that it was really that relevant to the Canadian debate. But I was a young guy, and I showed a certain panache in my writing style, and maybe, eventually, I would write a book that people wanted to read. So I was a long-term investment. Well, the book was, came out. And the central thesis was something no one in the political class was willing to discuss. And it was this, that waiting lists were not an accident. They were deliberate. They were deliberate because the government needed to ration care, because when you make health care free at the point of use, people overuse. And to deal with the health inflation that results, they decided not to do anything on the demand end that would be un-Canadian, but to restrict on the supply end. And so when the population was aging, they cut the number of people graduating from medical school classes, they closed nursing schools, they closed hospitals. And what we had in Canada was, by design, like the old Soviet system. Everything was free, but nothing was readily available. That's kind of amusing, I suppose, when you're talking about, I don't know, toilet tissue in 1977 in Moscow, and vastly less amusing when you're talking about cancer care in Toronto in 2007. Well, the book came out. It went through five printings. Uh, it won the highest award in, in public policy in Canada. And I think it started, uh, or it marked, a shift in the debate that went on north of the 49th parallel. Who knows, maybe even helped with that debate going on. Today, newspapers are littered with stories about wait lists. Uh, people right across the country complain that the public system isn't... Uh, working and change is needed. While our politicians still remain very, very conservative, not politically conservative, but I mean cautious, the, uh, the people have really changed their perspective. Let me give you some examples of just how much this debate has changed. There's not a single politician in Canada who supports user fees or private insurance, and yet we have private clinics opening up at a rate of about one a week. Uh, 
Dr. Brian Day, who's a doctor who uh, so passionately believes in private medicine that he literally opened up his own surgery hospital, private surgery hospital, and challenged the government to shut him down. He's just been elected the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Uh, in whole parts of the country, the government no longer enforces uh, the, the health care monopoly that they should. You can get a private PET scan in Quebec. You can buy yourself a hand surgery in Vancouver. I don't want to overstate my point. Canada is still a very socialist country, okay? Uh, and the changes that are going on are, are small. But it is, I think, uh, especially with that recent Supreme Court decision that struck down key laws as being unconstitutional, a little bit like at the height of the Cold War, if in the Soviet Union the Supreme Soviet had ruled that, you know, not only can you open up a franchise of Pizza Hut restaurants across the Soviet Union, but you can float a junk bond to sponsor it all. I mean, these things are incredible. And you're seeing them right across the Western world. Uh, in Sweden, the largest hospital in Stockholm is now under private management. In Britain, a labor government the intellectual heirs to the government that introduced the National Health Service are the governments that's talking about you should have a voucher when it comes to basic surgeries and you can go to a public hospital or a private clinic. These things are going right across the Western world as increasingly people are discovering that public health care simply does not do what it's supposed to do. Right across the Western world, except, ironically enough, right here in the United States. In fact, in the United States, we're moving in the opposite direction. Right now, members of Congress are negotiating with the White House about how to expand S-CHIP. S-CHIP is a lousy program. Obviously, I've got a libertarian bias, but even if I was a, a, a rocked-ribbed liberal, I would hate the program, okay? You want to help kids with health insurance? Why do you have a program then where in Minnesota, 87% of the money is used on adults, it makes no sense. And yet in Washington, the debate is between how much to expand it. There's the Republican version, 20%, and there's the Democratic version, 100%. I'm hoping both sides lose. The debate about the FDA, incidentally, is not about how to reform the FDA. It's about how to expand the FDA and so on. Um, I think 2008 will be interesting, but from a policy point of view, I also fear it will be irrelevant because it doesn't matter these days whether it's Republicans or Democrats. Uh, th th there is a belief that when it comes to health care, the government does it best. The rest of the world has adopted that view and 40, 50 years after doing so have come to a different conclusion. And I, I think that's really the task for us. Let me come back then to American healthcare, the topic of my most recent book and, and my own thoughts and how they evolved over time. Initially, um, I looked at American healthcare as being a titanic disaster. And the reason I assumed it was a titanic disaster was cost simply rose. And I asked, I suspect, like all of you have wondered, why is it that costs rise year after year? particularly in the United States, but right across the Western world. And initially, my answer to that question was, medicine just got better with time. I've now come to a different conclusion, and my conclusion is that American healthcare is so tremendously expensive because it's so incredibly cheap. Let me come back to my conclusion in a few moments, and let me explain to you everything you ever wanted to know about American health policy by talking about four dates, okay? Understand the events of these four dates, and you understand everything there is that's gone on with American health care and everything that's ought to be done. The first date, of course, is February 12, 1941, on which, uh, what, what monumental event occurs then? I like participatory democracy. I'll be totally honest with you. I'm a little bit of an unbeliever. No. 
<laughs> Does anyone else want to? Yes? Say again? It's the first clinical use of penicillin. And this is the day that really shapes American medicine. I think if we discovered nothing else in the 20th century except penicillin, it still would have been the century of medicine. As you know, so much comes after. But pause for a moment and consider that story. Now, I don't know how many of you are are well familiar with it. Uh, Where I studied uh, medicine, we barely did any medical history which is a terrible pity. But you can read good accounts of this. Le Fanu has, I think, perhaps the best account where he talks about the rise and fall of modern medicine, which I think is the best book you should get uh, on this topic. But he talks about the story of this research-based lab in Britain And as part of the war effort, they decided to do something a little bit more empirical, a little bit more relevant. And so they decided to take this totally obsolete idea, which is that good things can come from microbes. And they decided to, in fact, call penicillin, which no one had really thought in terms of for two decades. And they called penicillin, and then they needed a patient. And they found the patient in Albert Alexander, who was a police officer, I believe, uh, in his early 50s, who had made a terrible error. He had dropped a letter on the ground outside his home, and he reached down, and he picked it up. And as he picked it up, he scraped his face under rosebush. Uh, what happened? It got infected. And what happened? He got septic. So what did they do for Albert Alexander? They sent him to the local sepsis unit of his local hospital. Remember what the sepsis unit is? It's where you go to die from your blood infection. And they took Albert Alexander and they gave him penicillin. On the first day, nothing happened. On the second day, nothing happened. On the third day, his fever broke. And on the fourth day, he rose off his sickbed. They had so little penicillin, they were actually culling his urine for the penicillin uh, in order to provide it to him. And that day really changes everything. Now, you and I are doctors, and we like to tell people we're part of this ancient tradition. At my alma mater, we took the Hippocratic Oath. You did, I'm sure, at yours. In fact, we took the Hippocratic Oath twice at the beginning of med school, and just, I suppose, if you got corrupted over those four years at the end of medical school. Um, What we do as doctors today has nothing really to do with what Hippocrates did. Um, I'm a psychiatrist. Here we are in the shadow of Philadelphia. Of course, one thinks about Benjamin Rush and his enormous influence. I belong to the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, That portrait is Benjamin Rush's portrait, an extraordinary man, uh, a a well-respected doctor who wrote the definitive book on neurology used for six decades after his death, a revolutionary hero, a founding father, uh, quite the entrepreneur as well. But I don't bleed patients and I don't spin patients. When we talk about modern medicine, I think some of our colleagues like to argue this is a 500-year-old tradition or even a 5,000-year-old tradition. It's absolute nonsense. Medicine really, as we understand it, begins February 12, 1941 with the first clinical use of penicillin, and it changes the world. Kelvin Coolidge, president of the United States in the 1920s, had a son with a particular interest in tennis, and he disliked wearing socks. At the age of 16, he went onto the White House courts, and he played just in his running shoes, no socks and he got a blister on the great toe of his left foot and within three days was lying on his deathbed from an infection. Kelvin Coolidge, President of the United States, one of the most important men of his time, crawled on all fours on the White House lawn in order to catch a rabbit so that his dying son could hold it. His son was 16 and succumbed to an infection. That doesn't happen anymore. By 1964, with penicillin and other antibiotics, the Surgeon General of the United States had declared that the war on germs had been won. 
That, as you know, is a little bit of an overstatement, but not a profound overstatement, as it would turn out. And again, as I've mentioned before, so many things have taken place since then. We've had penicillin, uh, we've had MRIs and open-heart surgeries. I like to say that if you want to understand American medicine, you really need to know uh, only uh, the organ of one man, and that's the heart of Dick Cheney. Now, some of you are passionate lovers of Dick Cheney. You've posters of him all about the house. Some of you think he's like Darth Vader and everything bad about the United States goes back to him. I don't really care where you stand on Dick Cheney. I'm agnostic. But the man has had four heart attacks. Now, I'm just a psychiatrist. Some of you are real doctors, cardiologists and the like. Maybe I don't get something, but if I might summarize some very, very complicated cardiology and cardiac physiology, again, this might seem a little simplistic. If you're in the cardiac work, just interrupt me if I've got this wrong. But as a general rule of thumb, three heart attacks is better than four, two better than three and four, one better than the, all of the above. And all things considered, you probably don't want to have a heart attack at all, right? This man has had four heart attacks, and not only... I'm sorry. Not only is he able to walk up a flight of stairs, he's able to hold down full-time employment. That is just one of the extraordinary developments of the 20th century. Since the advent of penicillin, not only have we had changes in the war on germs, uh, cardiac care has been revolutionized. Death by cardiovascular disease has fallen two-thirds since 1950. Diseases that once plagued us like childhood leukemia are now eminently treatable. I'm in psychiatry in 1950. If you were a good psychiatrist and you had a patient with schizophrenia, you put them on the couch and you explore their childhood. You know what the long-term outcome data suggests? It doesn't beat placebo. I've never quite understood what placebo would be with talking therapy, but I accept that data. Today, you give them antipsychotics, and neuroscience is very primitive, but some of them can return to work. Um, it's a remarkable field we're in, and all of this takes place since 1941. And yet, if medicine has changed so dramatically, not just infectious disease, thank you, not just infectious disease, not just cardiology, not just psychiatry, but all of medicine has been revolutionized, such that somebody can have four heart attacks and walk around Blair House. Healthcare, in terms of its financing and organization, remains suspiciously similar to the way it used to be. And that speaks to those other two days I had made mention of. October 26, 1943, December 1, 1942. The two most important days in American health policy. October 26, you're an informed crowd. October 26, 1943, what occurs on that date? Pardon me? Change of tax benefits? Absolutely. The IRS rules that health insurance policies can be paid in pre-tax dollars. Most important data to understand, I think, in American health policy. Congress doesn't give uh, any legislation for the president's sign. FDR doesn't even give a speech. But as you're well aware, FDR had implemented wage and price controls the year before. As you're well aware, everyone seems to have a story about price controls, not necessarily that you experienced or your aunt or your grandmother. The cues for margarine, the frustration around getting gasoline and so on. And yet it's the wage controls that, in a sense, still linger today. Employers trying to attract better employees couldn't because of the wage controls. And so they started to offer health insurance. At the beginning of the Second World War, 7% of American employers offered health insurance benefits. By the end of the Second World War, it was about a third. Jump ahead to the late 1980s, it was up to about 87%. What was once this unusual, obscure idea became the main standard uh, of health financing in America. Why was that? Well, it's easy to understand from a tax point of view. If it's prepaid and 
taxed, if it's, pre, it's sorry, if it's paid in uh, pre-tax dollars, employees would want it, employers would want it, right? A thousand dollar increase to a manager might mean, depending on what the top marginal rate was, and remember how high that top marginal rate was in the 1970s, that your manager walks home with 700, 600, 500 bucks in his pocket. But a thousand dollars worth of health benefits could mean that he walks home with a thousand dollars of value. And one also finds that because of this, health insurance in the United States has really changed over time. It is not really insurance. It covers marital counseling. Uh, it covers uh, uh, checkups. It covers small ticket items. And that again speaks to the fact that it's really a benefit and not an insurance. The other date that has remade American healthcare is December 1, 1942. And what occurs on that date? You're really big on Social Security. Lord Beveridge releases his report on wel- the welfare state in Britain, uh, an event that has monumental impact here, even though it occurs across the Atlantic. Lord Beveridge, a very smart uh, liberal member of the House of Lords, reviews things and comes to the conclusion that there should be a, a government pension. I guess you get part marks. Um, but also that when it comes to healthcare, people really can't make their own decisions, and so it should be zero uh, dollar insurance. Now, Lord Beveridge is an enormously charming individual, and he comes to North America, and he gives a very well-publicized lecture tour, and he really persuades members of the Truman administration who put forward a government health care package, uh, socialist medicine, socialized medicine, which fails, as you know, but I think Beveridge really lays the intellectual foundation for Medicare and Medicaid. And jump ahead over the ensuing decades, and really you have two schools of thought on how to develop and frankly contain costs in the United States. You have Wilbur Mills, who gets Medicare and Medicaid through Congress. Everyone gives LBJ credit, but I think it's Wilbur Mills who, who, who did the most. And the other titanic figure is Richard Nixon. Right? Richard Nixon, who uh, comes up with the idea of managed care. It's triangulation 20 years before we had Bill Clinton on the national scene. And he says, look, I don't support socialized medicine like many people, including Nelson Rockefeller. On the other hand, the status quo is unsustainable. And so we'll take this West Coast idea, HMOs, and we'll implement it across America. And he originally wanted to implement it in the private insurance market because it would be so successful that they could then use it for Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, one of the funny things, of course, in American health policy is how much the left and the right overlap in thinking. The HMO Act of 1973 is championed by Nixon, sponsored by Kennedy, and voted on by a bipartisan uh, majority. And there we have really the debate that has taken place in the United States. You have people who champion a government expansion and jump ahead to Hillary Care in the early 1990s, and she's really just continuing along the lines of Wilbur Mills and uh, Lord Beveridge. And you have people uh, in the Republican Party who oppose it, and they're really just pushing along Richard Nixon's ideas. Well, I think that the problem with American health care is structural. Again, as I said a moment ago, most people simply assume medicine got better. Okay, so Dick Cheney can be in Blair House and be vice president of the United States, but he's got a pacemaker in his chest, and it's got a defibrillator attached to it. That's like $30,000 to put in and maintain. As you're aware, that's about 50 times more than the average American spent in an entire year in 1971 when Marcus Welby, MD, was the most popular show on television and one out of three American households tuned in. If we've got better medicine, we're going to pay for it. What I would argue to you is it's just the curious way we pay for medicine that we have this phenomenon. In every other aspect of the economy, technological advancement is accompanied by a fall in prices, right? 
Let me give you an example on unit pricing. Does anyone here have a computer? You've got a computer on your desk at work? I'm a doctor. Of course I don't have a computer on my desk at work. Did you have a computer 10 years ago? Pardon me? Did you, did you have a, a computer at home 10 years ago? No. It was just too expensive, wasn't it? Today, your machine is more powerful than the machines that were available 10 years ago. You could do things that people never envisioned, like email friends in Singapore, download MP3s, download naughty pictures, whatever you want. And yet it's cheaper than it was historically, right? Uh, One can find countless examples. Uh, Do you remember when color television came out onto the market? My father ran out and bought one of the first color televisions in Pennsylvania, where my parents lived at the time, uh, in Bellefonte, Pennsylvania. Uh, my mother was so mortified by the cost, they didn't speak for an entire week. I suppose my father watched television for that week. (laughs) There was only one TV station broadcasting in color, so I'm not sure he got much variety. Today, of course, color televisions are a dime a dozen. Some studies suggest that uh, uh, two-thirds of welfare recipients have at least one color television. A bare majority have two. Color televisions are so cheap, and cell phones, and a dozen other things. Unit pricing falls with time. Think about aspects of the economy like agriculture. We spend less on agriculture than we spent at the turn of the 20th century, but isn't food so much better and more plentiful? One forgets that milk used to be a treat, right? People in their upper classes could afford milk on a regular basis. People in the middle class could not. It's one of the reasons why American society, with some notable exceptions, is taller than it's ever been. Um, so one finds prices fall with time. Why is healthcare the exception? And again, most people answer. David Cutler at Harvard, a slew of other people say, it just got better with time. And if you're going to accept that medicine is getting better, you have to accept that, that, that it's getting more expensive. And as I pointed out now, no other aspect of the economy works like that. Um, it is simply that we are dealing with the consequences of those two days, October 26, 1943, and December 1, 1942. As you're aware, Americans pay a fraction of their health care bills, right? It's about 14 cents on every healthcare dollar actually comes out of pocket. And that's what I meant about American healthcare being so terribly expensive because it's so terribly cheap. Imagine if you went to the grocery store and you only paid 14 cents on the bill and your employer picked up the rest. Would you ever leave with half a cart? It's also one of the curious things about American healthcare that we have so little data and so little quality data. I mean, we don't even know basic pricing, uh, let alone quality data. You walk into a grocery store, and you're surrounded by prices. You go to your family doctor's office and say, how much is that MRI? And he says, I don't know, because he doesn't know. Until we address those economic problems, I'm afraid that American healthcare is going to continue to get more expensive. And the fourth date I'd like to point out is January 1, 2013. Does anyone know what happens in January 1, 2013? Medicare exhausts that trust fund. And the other thing is, uh, between now and then, American health care costs will have doubled. If you think GM has difficulty with their health costs today, imagine what it's going to be like in just a few short years. We are in a crisis. And increasingly, the other side is organized, and increasingly, the other side is effective. But I would suggest to you the following. Americans have never been more uh, upset and repulsed by the idea of price controls. We have an oil crisis in America, like we did, an energy crisis like we did in the 1970s. And then uh, Richard Nixon said, we're all Keynesian now, and introduced price controls. No one would suggest that now, not even the most liberal members of Congress. 
Americans have never been more distrustful of government planning. Americans have never been more distrustful of Congress. So when Hillary Clinton says, I believe in health care for everyone, it's a good sales pitch. But I think you can break these down element by element. And I think we need to put forward uh, bold proposals that oppose it. I would suggest to you five simple ideas that you can take to your congressman that I think would transform American health care. Five simple ideas which, incidentally, have won bipartisan approval. The first idea is we ought to make health care, health insurance rather, more like every other type of insurance. As I alluded to before, we've really distorted what insurance has become when it is health care. I mean, imagine if you bought car insurance, and it didn't just cover you if you were in an accident, but it covered you if uh, you dented the fender or you're running low on gas. But that's what's happened with health insurance. I think that Congress got something right in 2003 with health savings accounts, but I think that this is a House Ways and Means answer to a, to a problem that should be settled in Main Street. The structure is too rigid, and I talk about that in my book. Idea number two is we ought to foster competition and innovation. It sounds incredible to say that in America today, that, hey, I think we need competition and innovation. But when it comes to health policy for the last 60 years, we've regulated first and we've asked questions later. Let me give you a small example, since somebody already brought up McCarran in the last panel, the consequences of that. I work out of an office in New York. If I wanted to buy private health insurance, I would pay four times more for the same product from the same company covering the same things as I would if I got in the Metro North uh, and rode 45 minutes to Connecticut. Okay? Why? Because in the Empire State, you've mandated, you've mandated benefits, you've guaranteed issue and community rating. It's really destroyed people's ability to get health insurance. Uh, in New Jersey today, uh, a basic policy for a family of four costs more than the lease of a Ferrari on a monthly basis. And, of course, there's problems with hospital competition and clinic competition right across the board. Idea number three is uh, we have to do something about Medicaid and welfare reform points the way. Medicaid is the worst-run government program in America. I know that's a strong statement because you have a lot of options to choose from when you talk about bad government programs. But even the New York Times... Even the New York Times will admit that in the Empire State, one in every four dollars is whittled away in waste, fraud, and abuse. And you know, if there's a government program that the New York Times thinks there's trouble with, there's some deep problems. No wonder the New York Times thinks there are problems. As you remember last year, there was a bit of a scandal that erupted in New York when it was discovered that not only did uh, Medicaid cover Viagra, but it covered Viagra for convicted pedophiles in maximum security prisons for two dollars a month. An interviewer recently asked me, by the way, what is a month supply of Viagra? Um, ID number, th- uh, ID number uh, four is we have to do something about Medicare. And while I'll speak to that further in just one moment, I think this debate was much further ahead a decade ago when a bipartisan commission got together and suggested get rid of the wage and price controls and come up with a menu of insurance options, not unlike uh, the FEHBP. Again, that's not a cure-all, but I think that is a step towards a market for Medicare. And finally, I would suggest we have to do something about prescription drug costs, but I think that means reforming the FDA and not expanding it. Uh, I liked some of the experiments, uh, incidentally, that came out of the first Bush administration uh, with contracting out and so on. Those are five simple ideas that I think have won bipartisan support historically and would get us on the path to real reform. Now, in my book, in the last chapter, I talk about even more sweeping ideas. I talk about shoring up Medicare and means testing it and getting rid of this as a middle 
of class entitlement. I talk about reviewing the FDA and the efficacy standard. And finally, I talk about getting rid of the entire model of employer-based health insurance. That is not where the debate is right now. That is the way the debate ought to be. But for the time being, I think these five simple ideas would change American health care for the better. I think we can agree on it. And I think it suggests something better than Hillary Clinton talking about how we ought to be covered through wage and price controls. Um, I invite you now to ask me some questions.